The swamp is not being drained. Make America great again because Hillary was the Goldman Sachs candidate multiple Goldman Sachs people brought on to Trump's administration. You've been bamboozled, Trump supporters. I hate to break it to you. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Majority Report, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, Ring of Fire, The David Pakman Show, and The Tom Hartman Program. When President-elect Donald Trump was campaigning, one of the things that people were able to brush under the rug was his bigotry, his sexism, his misogyny, because they believed, as working-class Americans, he was the only candidate that would look out for them. Well, fast forward to today, and it seems as though the individuals that he is working with and people that he plans on filling his cabinet with have no interest in protecting the working class or consumers in America. Case in point, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was created in 2010 and is the brainchild of Senator Elizabeth Warren. Now, a number of Republicans are pushing to basically dismantle the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, Senator Richard Shelby, who is a Republican senator from Alabama, says, my top priority is either to bring the consumer agency under appropriations, which would give Congress the power to shrink its budget, or bar it from spending money on certain activities, or abolish it. But we'll have to see what we can do. I think it's been a nightmare to a lot of businesses, small businesses, unbridled power, arrogance. So there's a nice slip of the tongue there by Richard Shelby, where he said, uh, it's, that's terrible for business, because those are his donors and the guys who pay him off. Uh, and then he goes, oh, right, I meant small business, because that's their talking point. Mm -hmm. They don't get any money from small business. They get money from giant businesses. You, these guys are protecting you from banks like Wells Fargo. You think Wells Fargo is a small business? No, Wells Fargo is a giant business. But those are the same guys who pay for Richard Shelby's campaign donations, independent expenditures, etc. So Richard Shelby is their dog. So he'll go out there and go, okay, yeah, my talking point says, yes, yeah, small business doesn't have money to pay a senator and to pay lobbyists. Big business does. That's who you work for. Be honest. So these guys are robbing us. Let me tell you the degree to which they're robbing us. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, this is an amazing fact, returned nearly $12 billion to 27 million Americans. Now, the reason they did that was because they caught these financial companies running scams on you guys. And the companies had to admit, oops, you know, that's a scam. They didn't, if they... They could have fought it. If, it. if it was untrue, they'd go to court. They have an army of lawyers, right? They got caught with their hand in the cookie jar, and they're like, all right, fine, fine, fine. We probably still made more money off it. Let's just give the money, some of the money back. So 27 million Americans had been robbed by these bankers. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, because it protects consumers, fought back for you and got your money back, $12 billion. But those banks look at that and go, that's $12 billion I had planned to steal from you and put it in my pocket. And these meddlesome people protecting consumers, they took $12 billion of my profits that I was gonna take from you guys unjustly. And I had to give it back because the government's out there protecting you. God damn it, let's elect Republicans, make sure no one is protected but the banks. Well, mission accomplished. So 
You think Trump is going to drain the swamp? No, right now they're rubbing their hands going, yes, there are no rules anymore. Now the robbers rule the streets. Take all the cops off, don't protect the consumers, and let's just go at it. So the Richard Shelby's of the world, who are the most corrupt people in America, they talked about Hillary Clinton's corruption. And I pointed it out. I talked about systemic corruption. So anybody who watches this show knows we hate it when the Democrats do it. But if you think the Republicans are on your side, the joke's on you. They can't wait to rob you. And now that Trump's in, they're like open season on consumers, on citizens, on the powerless. Let's give all the money to our donors. So if you thought corruption was bad under the Democrats, wait till you see it on steroids under Trump. But Cenk, I just feel like you're being a smug elitist by wanting to talk about what people are actually going to do with their proposed policies. Why are we doing that? Like, Why don't we focus on how the middle class and, and the working class in America has been completely ignored by establishment politicians and we just need a man who tells it like it is. Look, the entire election was so frustrating because, look, Hillary Clinton was not my favorite candidate. Obviously, like we were very brutal to her uh, during the primaries and even after the primaries. But to say that she was a corporatist, even though it was fair, is a ridiculous criticism when her opponent is part of that corporate world who's been benefiting from deregulation, who's part of the privileged upper wealthy class in this country that loves the system of government that we have in place right now and who hates what little regulation we managed to pass after 2008, right? The Consumer Protection Bureau was one of the good things that came out of that economic meltdown. And unfortunately, with Trump in power and with Republicans like Richard Shelby, uh, you know, and Roy Blunt, having power along with him, they can do whatever they want. They're going to get rid of the one part of government that actually works right now. So if you're frustrated by the establishment Democrats like Hillary Clinton and to some degree Barack Obama, I'm right there with you. You know, Obama created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau for which he should get a lot of credit. But he did a kick in his screaming and Elizabeth Warren, who was the person who came up with the idea in the first place, everybody assumed that she would be put in charge of it, but Obama wouldn't do it because the bankers objected. So if you're frustrated by those Democrats, I'm right there with you. But if you think the Republicans are going to make it better, well, then you're totally wrong. It's one thing to say it's binary thinking. Like, oh, my team, uh, your team is bad, but my team's awesome. My team's great. Because Trump told me, he told me, man, uh, I know I could trust him because he speaks in broken English. He speaks like a moron, so I know he's a real person. No, no, that's fake authenticity. That's fake populism. So he goes out there and speaks with a third grade vocabulary and you think, okay, well, he's not a polished politician. I get it. You're right. Hillary Clinton, everything she said was scripted. I know that. But just because he speaks like an idiot doesn't mean he's honest. So you gave this guy a lot of power. And we told you about his foundation. We told you about everything he's ever done. So if you thought Hillary Clinton was corrupt, I hear you. But wait till you get a load of Donald Trump. The first thing he's going to do is hand off power to the richest people in America. So the next time they go to steal $12 billion from 27 million of you. And by the way, when they steal from you, they don't ask if you're a Republican. They don't ask if you're a Democrat. You think they're only taking from liberals? No, you're their first mark. Oh, the guys who trust the government, the guys, if it's a Republican government, the guys who trust giant corporations, come and see. We got great accounts for you. Come and see. Oh, yeah, you want to hand off power to Trump and the Republicans? Oh, wonderful. Come and see, come and see.
So don't cry when they rip you off, because that's what's coming next. Like wolves dressed in sheep's clothing to rip you off. Rip off! Rip off! They plan to rip you off. Rip off! Rip off! They come to rip you What is the uh, supposed Donald Trump infrastructure plan? Right. So this is the thing that uh, liberals and Democrats have said, well, if we're going to work with Donald Trump on one thing, it would be this this infrastructure idea. And, and, you know, I mean, for years, Democrats have been screaming that there's trillions of dollars in deferred maintenance out there in the country. Uh, We have these record low interest rates. We could put them to use by borrowing money and fixing roads and bridges and and tunnels and and the electrical grid and the broadband uh, uh, capacity and uh, all sorts of other things. So Trump, during the campaign, said he wanted a trillion dollars of infrastructure. And this, of course, brings jobs. Uh, It brings investment in communities that might be able to attract businesses. Uh, Seemingly a win-win-win. Well, Donald Trump doesn't want to spend a trillion dollars in, in, in public money for infrastructure projects. He wants to sell bonds so investors will spend a trillion dollars in infrastructure process projects, and he wants to give them discounts through tax breaks to entice them to buy those bonds. And then he wants to outsource the production of that infrastructure to uh, contractors who would be guaranteed a revenue stream, which, of course, is the only way investors are going to want to buy these bonds, is if they get something out of it in an enduring fashion. So what this really is, is a stalking horse for privatization. If you think that what we really need in America is a lot more toll roads, then you're going to be happy with Donald Trump's infrastructure plan because it's going to privatize all of these public resources and make sure there are user fees on the various pieces of infrastructure so that private interest can make back their investment and more. So the idea is, okay, we need um, uh, some new overpasses in California, some bridges on uh, some interstate highways. Um, we're just basically going to finance the private production uh, or, or construction of these things and uh, through future revenues and what. I mean, it sounds like all of this sounds like Chris Christie's uh, pumping money into that. What was it? American dream in the uh, Meadowlands. Yeah. It's like massive, <laughs> the massive mall that they've already sunk billions of dollars into. I mean, it, it, just a huge boondoggle that never I think it's still just sort of like it's like a four billion dollar mall that is just not even developed yet. And you're asking for more boondoggles here, because uh, if you are outsourcing this to a developer and saying you're going to get this amount of profit and this kind of revenue stream, 
the way that they can maximize that is by doing a terrible job and by cutting corners. We've seen this in a toll road in Texas from San Antonio to Austin, where local residents, because they didn't do the drainage properly on the road, are experiencing flooding anytime there's a rainstorm. So uh, this is one other problem. And And the other problem is that the communities who would be getting these infrastructure projects are probably the least likely to uh, be the ones, uh, you know, the most likely to actually need them would be the ones who wouldn't get them. Uh, And the reason is, is that if you need to build in a revenue stream, you're not going to put an infrastructure project in a rural community where those individuals can't actually afford to pay the user fees to use the project, whether it's a road or a bridge or whatever. I mean, this is almost self-evident, right? Is that uh, the reason why we need infrastructure projects that are, uh, you know, where the government steps in is because it is more often than not, uh, not profitable for private enterprise to do so. This is like just a massive subsidy scheme. Uh, and sort of, uh, double, it's it's sort of like, I guess, double fisted, right? It's a massive subsidy scheme, uh, to basically allow private corporations to buy public goods. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about selling off the country and you're exactly right to indicate. And we're subsidizing, uh, we're subsidizing the buyer. We're not even giving the buyer a loan. We're subsidizing the buyer to buy our stuff at discount prices. Yeah, through a tax uh, uh, rebate. And the claim is is that that tax cut will pay for itself because there will be more people at work uh, doing, you know, performing the construction necessary for these projects. And that will bring more tax revenues to the government. So they're they're doing this tax cut by claiming it would be that would pay for itself, which is something we've heard throughout uh, conservative uh, policy circles for decades. And and it also, you know, I, I would also argue that what we've also heard is that government can't create jobs, right? And so, and that, I mean, and that private enterprise is it always and forever more efficient in these provisions of public services. That's what we've heard out of the private prison industry. That's what we've heard out of privatization projects in schools. Uh, basically everywhere you go on down the line, uh, the idea is that private enterprise can, uh, can, can deliver this service more efficiently, but they're hiding the ball. Uh, they may, they may come in under budget, but they're doing a private tax on the individuals who have to pay the user fees to maintain the piece of infrastructure. So you're just, you're just shifting the cost from the government to the right. individual. Right. All right. Well, David, so is there a broader, sort of, I guess, a story here. In other words, when uh, Democrats, when uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, when they say, like, we will work with, God help me, President-elect Trump um, to, uh, you know, to do these things like an infrastructure project, is it always going to be a bit of like a, I don't know, uh, a honeypot, a, uh, a trick, a fraud? Like, is there really any value in even giving, you know, like floating the premise that he's doing something positive? In other words, like well, by calling it infrastructure, I mean, here's my concern is that 
once you get to the argument of like, this isn't really an infrastructure program. It's just a giveaway to uh, private corporations. Has the ship sailed at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think that politicians have their own role to play. They have their own sort of internal pressures. They have to point that they're they're willing to work in some fashion uh, with on good policy uh, if such thing exists. I think if, if you know if that is inevitably the policy that gets thrown out there, then uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders won't hesitate to speak up. The, the advantage they actually have here is that Paul Ryan is not interested in doing this bill at all. And so the only way it gets done is through an alliance between Donald Trump and uh, Democrats in Congress. And if you, you know, if you know what you're getting into, which is, you know, my role of explaining what uh, the Trump campaign, at least, uh, put out there in terms of this bill, uh, then you have the ability to shape it. Uh, because because Ryan really isn't interested. So, uh, you know, that I think that's sort of the, 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 the gambit here. Uh, but it's worth pointing out that what the Trump uh, uh, administration seems to want to do here would be extremely destructive. The broken, feeble, destructive. Today's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron, who delivers fresh, perfectly portioned ingredients for great meals right to your door for less than the cost of eating out. Not all ingredients are created equal, of course. That's why Blue Apron partners with over 150 local farms, ranches, and fisheries across the U.S. to deliver their fresh and high-quality ingredients right to your door. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, there's no food waste. It's everything you need to make sustainable and delicious home-cooked meals in four minutes or less. A couple of the things they're cooking up soon are falafel pitas with roasted sweet potatoes and udon noodle soup with miso. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com best. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com best. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. You're broken. Third item for today has to do with President-elect Trump's plan. His plan is to reduce the corporate income tax. That's the amount of money the corporations of America have to pay to Uncle Sam as a percentage of their profits. In other words, a company sells its output for revenue, subtracts the costs labor, materials, and all the rest. And the difference between revenue and costs is their profit. And on that profit, corporations are required to send Uncle Sam 35%. Don't cry just yet, because most companies have deductions and exemptions that bring it down to an average more like 20-22% that they have to pay. President-elect Trump got a lot of support by promising when he's a president that he will reduce it from the 35% official rate down to 20 or 15%. And here's his rationale. If we reduce the tax on corporations, well, then they will have less incentive to go abroad the way they have been. 
And so jobs will not be leaving here. And so Mr. Trump can deliver on his promise to American workers to bring jobs back. That's the plan. It's all very nice as far as it sounds. We don't worry about what it means to the federal government that those billions of dollars it got from the corporations won't be flowing to Washington. We're not going to ask today, we will in future programs, what is going to happen with the federal government when it doesn't have that money. I'm not going to worry about that now. I'm going to worry about something else. Will the rest of the world stand still? Will it simply stand still as the United States changes its tax laws to make companies that were going to leave the United States and go abroad not do it? And maybe, as Mr. Trump suggests, persuade companies already overseas to come back here since they went there to escape taxes here in part. Well, maybe they'll come back. Here's something from those of you who pay attention to President-elect Trump and perhaps even his advisors, here's something to think about. It is possible that the rest of the world won't stand still, that they will not stand quietly and have companies located there leave. Companies that were about to come there and improve their economy choose not to come. They're not going to accept it. And let me give you an example of what other countries not only may do, but are already doing. My example will be Israel. New regulations expected to pass by the end of this year, working their way through the Israeli parliament, will cut the corporate tax rate in Israel from as much as 25%, which it can be to some now, down to, get ready, 6%. In other words, Israel is taking the steps it wants to take to negate the effect of what Mr. Trump proposes to do, and they're going to have it in place before he gets to do it, if even he can. In other words, the promised benefits of cutting corporate taxes will indeed flow to the companies. They'll have lower taxes. But when it comes to where they move and when they move, the effect will be nothing because they aren't going to move because the other countries are already taking them. Last part of this lovely story. Lovely here is meant ironically. This is a race to the bottom. The United States is cutting its taxes. Israel is cutting its taxes. All the other countries will be cutting their taxes. Governments everywhere will be without the resources to maintain the quality of life for the mass of their people. Corporations everywhere will get less taxation, and the rest of us will get screwed. favorite talking points of every single Republican politician to ever run for office in the last 40 years has been this, regulations kill jobs and hurt the economy. 
Now you can go back through decades worth of Republican stump speeches and things of that nature, and you will find that talking point constantly. It's the Republicans favorite thing because they use that to attack the very government offices for which they are running. Republicans hate government and they hate uh, government oversight, but even more than Republicans hate it, businesses hate it. Why? Because regulations cost them a few more dollars every year. And in some instances, that is literally the case, a few more dollars every year. And that's why during his campaign, Donald Trump promised that he was going to repeal essentially every climate and environmental protection that was introduced or enacted under the Obama administration, including the clean power plant rule. Now, fossil fuel industries, uh, uh, other corporations applaud this because again, they hate regulations and a lot of small business owners and Republican voters in general also think that regulations are strangling businesses, stifling the economy, killing jobs, and just overall having a net negative effect on the United States. My advice for Donald Trump, for Republican voters and Republican uh, Congress people is to actually read something. There is not a single credible study produced in the United States that points anywhere to say that regulations kill jobs. On the contrary, every credible study not funded by industry says that regulations, oh my goodness, they actually create more jobs than could potentially be destroyed by an industry uh, who just was slapped with stricter federal regulations. But more importantly, regulations create jobs. And do you know what happens when one job is created? There's something called the multiplier effect in economics. For every one job created, three more get created down the line as a result from the increased economic output of that one job. So you create 10 jobs, you've got 30 more coming in the pipeline. You create 100, 300 more coming down the pipeline. That's what trickle up economics does. It works. It's been proven study after study shows it. So if Donald Trump is serious about coming in, repealing the clean power rule, repealing other environmental regulations, he is going to cost this country hundreds of thousands of jobs. And that is actually coming from a new report on the hill.com. Donald Trump's anti-regulatory agenda, the Republican anti-regulatory agenda is actually going to cost this country hundreds of thousands of jobs. So what does that mean? Obviously reduced economic revenue, but let's put it in, in, in even more specific terms. According to estimates, if Donald Trump were to repeal all of the environmental regulations that he wants to repeal, it would result in economic losses in the United States over the next decade of $800 billion. We're talking about 800 billion with a B dollars worth of lost economic income just from repealing environmental regulations. So you spend 80 billion, you get 800 billion back. I'd say that's a pretty good investment, right? Whatever you're spending, you're getting 10 times more back, but don't tell that to Republicans because they don't even want to spend that first initial investment, regardless of the yield. Because here's the thing about uh, corporate CEOs today. The average tenure of a corporate CEO is between three and five years. Back at the beginning of the 1980s, the average tenure of a CEO was between 15 and 20 years. So they actually cared about the company's long-term future, not just how much money they can make in the next year or two. 
And that's another thing that has helped to, to kind of change the business mindset about regulations and spending that money today to make it back in a few other days. They're not willing to do that anymore because they have to make as much money possible in as short a time as possible and then take the money and run to another industry. Donald Trump understands that because he was a businessman. He knows what it's like to grab the cash and run. And that's all he cares about. And that's why he wants to repeal these regulations. But you know what? It's actually not just the money that could be saved. It's the lives. Tens of thousands of people in the United States die every single year from climate related activities linked back to climate change. The economic losses of those deaths are about $95 billion a year, $95 billion a year from climate change related deaths, not to mention what it does to families and the, 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 the psychological toll it plays on that. But we're talking about a life and death situation here with Trump wanting to repeal these environmental regulations. Is it worth it? No, it's not worth the money. It's not worth the lives. It's not worth anything. And any average American citizen out there watching this video, unless you're a CEO of a massive company, which I don't consider you an average citizen at that point, you should be against this. It will cost you more money. It's not going to create energy independence in the United States. That's a lie. We could have energy independence in the United States today if we didn't ship most of it overseas or stockpile it for later use or if we utilize the full potential of renewable energy sources in the United States. We can't drill any more than we already are because we don't have the manpower and the physical resources needed to continue drilling. We could have energy independence like Republicans talk about. We're just not willing to go the renewable route with it. There are jobs to be created with the uh, federal regulatory agencies, well-paying jobs, I might add well-paying jobs that offer a lot of training. Even if you have no idea what you're doing, they'll get you up to speed. And then we have the ripple multiplier effect from that. But Republicans just don't get it or they just don't want to get it. Economics is hard. Trust me, I know. But when you break it down into simple terms, everybody can understand this. Regulations create jobs and are good for the economy. Anyone who tells you otherwise is lying to you. Today's episode is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. If you've ever hired a new employee, then you know the hassle it can turn into. First, you figure out where to post the job opening to find the best candidate, but then there are over 100 job sites out there. Then you have to wade through all the emails and calls that start to come in. Or there's ZipRecruiter, where you can post your job opening to all those sites plus social media networks like Facebook and Twitter with a single click, and then manage the flow of qualified candidates in ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails and calls directly to the office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. And if you have any issues at all, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, my listeners can post on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. 
Now, let's dig in more specifically to Goldman Sachs. I've spoken about this in pieces before. I want to dedicate a little bit of time to it. Goldman Sachs, Donald Trump ran against Hillary Clinton's perceived coziness with Wall Street. That very acutely included investment bank Goldman Sachs. Trump slammed Hillary Clinton the entire campaign during debates even for her connections to Goldman Sachs. He slammed Hillary Clinton for giving speeches to Goldman Sachs. And now Trump is hiring the people who hired Hillary Clinton to give those speeches. You'll remember that it wasn't just through the Hillary Clinton uh, uh, insults that Trump slammed Goldman Sachs. Trump also slammed Goldman Sachs during the Republican primary, criticizing Ted Cruz for having taken a loan from Goldman Sachs, saying, I know the guys at Goldman Sachs. They have total, total control over Cruz, just like they have total control over Hillary Clinton. Wow, really sharp, pointed critiques. Uh, and it seemed almost like it was going both ways, because you'll remember that in September, Goldman Sachs banned certain employees from donating to Donald Trump's campaign. It seemed official. Trump is anti-Goldman. Goldman doesn't want employees at a certain level donating to Donald Trump, period. And then we had Trump's final pitch to voters. Trump actually used an image of Lloyd Blankfein in a TV ad to argue that insiders from Wall Street had ruined the lives of ordinary Americans to enrich themselves. Wow, very Bernie Sanders-like, very uh, a populist sounding, except now the Trump swamp is being filled with Goldman Sachs veterans. We have Goldman Sachs's Gary Cohn, who is going to be heading up Trump's economic council. We have Goldman Sachs's Steve Mnuchin, who is going to be heading out, uh, heading up Trump's secretary department. And then, of course, we have climate science denier Anthony Scaramucci, who is a former Goldman Sachs guy and a key transition member for Trump. What is more globalist than Goldman Sachs? Of course, globalism that Trump and his cohorts like Alex Jones and other conspiracy theorists deplored. And then we have Wilbur Ross, who will be Donald Trump's commerce secretary, worth nearly $3 billion. And while not uh, as closely connected to Goldman Sachs, made a ton of money with the exact same types of activities that Trump absolutely slammed during the campaign. Oh, and Steve Bannon, former Goldman Sachs banker. Now, there's always a defense from the Trumpists and from Trump. And usually those defenses require the suspension of dis disbelief. Now the new party line is, according to the alt-rightists and the Trumpists, it's, oh, these people that Trump is hiring uh, that he used to say were really bad, they're smart businessmen. And when you bring in people who are not the political status quo, you're going to have people that maybe have done some things as really astute and smart, shrewd business people. Uh, that some of us might not like, but they're going to be part of making America great again. The swamp is not being drained, ladies and gentlemen. Repeal Obamacare, it's a disaster. Actually, many of those provisions are good. Flip-flop. Prosecute and jail Hillary Clinton. Nah, Flip-flop, that was just something for the campaign. Don't care about that now. Make America great again because Hillary was the Goldman Sachs candidate. Multiple Goldman Sachs people brought on to Trump's administration. You've been bamboozled, Trump supporters. I hate to break it to you. I've been hoodwinked. I've been bamboozled.
Our next update has to do with a move by the Trump administration this last week to direct the Labor Department to review an Obama administration rule governing financial advisors. Let me explain. More and more Americans are without a pension. That's bad. We've talked about that. But I want to talk now about the millions of Americans who do still have a pension, even if it's less useful, less favorable than it used to be. And one of the ways that pensions have become less useful and less favorable than they once were is being changed from what used to be called defined benefit pensions to defined contribution pensions. Let me explain. A defined benefit, just like it sounds, means that you know as a worker that the money being set aside for you, money you're not getting as a wage or salary because your employer is setting it aside, investing it so that you can get a pension when you retire, defined benefit pension means you are told you have a commitment that you will get so and so many dollars per month upon retirement, a defined retirement benefit. That's what we used to have. But employers didn't want to carry the risk that the stock market might not go real well, that the money they set aside might not be enough, something employers tend to do, and therefore they wouldn't be able to meet their commitment and could be sued by workers for not delivering the pension that they had defined. So instead, employers prefer a defined contribution. They had just promised to set aside a certain amount of money. How much you get depends on how well the investments did. And that has led to more and more companies also letting workers themselves manage the money set aside, the defined contribution. That way the employer doesn't have to worry about it, and the risk is all on the worker themselves. Good for the employer. What do the workers do? Most workers don't know the details of investing money. It's not the material they've ever had to do before. It's nothing anyone ever taught them about. So they rely on advisors who work in companies that offer advice. And here's where the trouble starts. The advisors, as individuals, as employees of a company, have a conflict of interest. It's built right in to the situation. When they give you, the worker, advice on how to invest the money put aside for your pension, do they give you advice that's best for you, who will receive the pension? Or do they give you advice that's best for them because they get paid fees for managing your investments? You, of course, would like to believe that they only take care of you, put your interests first. But it turns out, as countless studies have shown, that they don't. That they tilt often in favor of suggesting to you investments that are good for the fees they collect, but not so good for the value of the pension you ultimately rely on. And so the Obama administration, after years of public hearings and research, passed a rule that's supposed to take effect 
April 1 of this year, 2017, a rule which says an advisor has to put your interests, the person to get the pension, ahead of his or her interests as a paid advisor. In other words, you as a pension recipient can go to court and sue an advisor, and you can win if you can prove that he or she advised you in ways that were better for him or her than for you. It's called the fiduciary rule. And Mr. Trump has advised the Labor Department to review it with an eye to preventing it from taking effect on April 1. And if that strikes you as perhaps standing in criticism or contradiction to his helping the middle class in America, the people who still have pension, a defined contribution pension, and who don't want to get ripped off by the advisors they have to lean on, well, then you've got a problem with Mr. Trump. And if you didn't already know that, well, I'm afraid I have to give you the news that it is the case. It was already meager, this work and reward For selling off the pastures of your life And the 30 bits of silver that you hope to call your own Turned into shoes for some rich banker's wife It's a high wire act With a safety net in tatters and a target on your back A target on your back You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell your senators to support and protect the fiduciary rule. As we just heard Professor Richard Wolff explain, President Obama's fiduciary rule is a rule that aims to protect hardworking Americans who hope to retire one day from self-serving financial advisors, and it's under threat. After years of debate, research, and industry lobbying, the rule is supposed to take effect on April 1st of this year, but Trump has intervened by asking the Department of Labor to analyze the rule again and rescind or revise if it is, quote, inconsistent, unquote, with administration priorities. To make matters worse, the Fox is, obviously, yet again in the henhouse, with former Goldman Sachs executive Gary Cohn, now the director of the National Economic Council, and he's on the record with the Wall Street Journal saying he wants the fiduciary rule gone. Senators like Elizabeth Warren are leading the charge to argue for the best interests of those with pensions and retirement funds, who are losing more than $17 billion every year without this rule in place. In a recent letter to the Acting Secretary of Labor, Warren noted that she wrote to over 30 lending finance companies about their stance on the fiduciary rule. 21 of them wrote back saying the rule is good for workers, saving for retirement, and companies are prepared to meet the compliance deadline. Warren goes on to say that, quote, to rescind this rule or delay the implementation of this rule in any way would rip billions of dollars in retirement savings from the pockets of hardworking Americans and put it straight into the hands of giant financial institutions, unquote. So what can you do? 
you need to call your senators today and every day to tell them to act like Elizabeth Warren. Tell them they need to publicly and proactively support and protect the fiduciary rule so that you and everyone with investments that their future depends on receives financial advice in their best interest. The team at Indivisible Guide has prepared call scripts specifically for the fiduciary rule issue to use when calling your senators. To access the scripts, simply Google Indivisible Guide Fiduciary Rule and it'll pop right up. And again, we want to ask that you help us in our work to amplify the most effective activism. If you've come across an action or a new organization that is doing great work getting people engaged to resist the Trump agenda, please share it with us by emailing amanda at bestoftheleft.com. The segment notes includes all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if stopping big banks from siphoning off workers' retirement savings is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling your senators to support and protect the fiduciary rule via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Trump has always been right about one thing. The system is rigged. Now let's stop him from helping the big banks keep it that way. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Professor William Black. He's a professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. The author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Professor Black is a former bank regulator who led investigations of the savings and loan crisis in the 80s. Uh, he blogs or writes for neweconomicperspectives.org. And you can tweet him at William K. Black. Uh, professor Black, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's been way too long since we have talked. Um, so I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on uh, the Trump administration working with the, the Wall Street banksters to roll back regulations on Wall Street and how this doesn't seem to be eliciting a peep of resistance from, from the uh, Republican base. Um, well, you don't expect it necessarily from the Republican base because, after all, they were supposedly the great haters of regulation. But all those uh, new voters, uh, all those uh, populist types, um, they uh, were promised uh, that uh, Trump would be taking on the bankers. In the first Republican debate, um, they Trump said, you don't know bankers like I do. They're killers. Right. That's right. And he uh, in one of his uh, late uh, ads uh, in the campaign, he used the uh, face, the uh, photo of uh, Blankfein, the head of Goldman Sachs, to embody all that was evil and, you know, how the Democrats had failed uh, to take on Goldman Sachs, the vampire squid uh, and right. such. But Goldman but Sachs now, stock is up a third since the election. Well, the stocks in general, of course, are up enormously uh, because business loves the idea of being able to loot with impunity. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it's not like uh, the Obama administration put any of them in jail, uh, but it, it did at least have some fines against the corporations. And now that there's a prospect of uh, uh, evisceration of the rules, putting um, Goldman Sachs people all over the top positions of the administration to ensure that whatever rules still exist won't be enforced – and putting an anti-prosecutor in, uh, again, as the uh, attorney general, uh, they're going to create the most criminogenic environment in the history of the United States, uh, both for elite fraud uh, by these corporate types, uh, but also good old-fashioned corruption. Well, we've seen this happen a couple of times. I mean, Warren Harding in 1920 ran on a campaign platform of Less, less government in business, more business in government. In other words, deregulate and privatize. And he also campaigned on tax cuts. He dropped the 91% tax rate that was in effect uh, in 1920 down to 25% over the course of the first four years, you know, by 1925. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. I, I don't think I am. And, uh, you know, that led directly to the great crash of 1929. Uh, Ronald Reagan deregulated the SNLs in the early 80s. I think it was 82, 83. That led to the crash of the SNLs in 86, which you were involved in unwinding or, or you know, checking out. Um, then, then you know, the Republicans, along with Bill Clinton, um, well, I, I don't know how much he was a cheerleader or if he just signed the legislation not even realizing what was going on, you know, between the Commodity Futures Modernization Act and and uh, the, uh, the the bill that killed Glass-Steagall, um, you know, deregulated the banks in 99 and 2000. That led right to 2008. It's, should we expect that this is going to be a repeat of these cycles? Oh, don't forget the Enron fraud. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, actually. Phil Graham, his wife, Wendy, was on the board of Enron. And, and you know, that, that was his, his baby. So, well, actually, the time uh, sequence is slightly different. Uh, first, they pass the Commodities Future Modernization Act. Uh, that created the uh, general uh, black hole in uh, our ability to regulate financial derivatives. Uh, and if in answer your question, Bill Clinton was an enthusiastic supporter uh, uh, of that, not a reluctant one. But uh, yes, you're right. It was assuredly bipartisan. Uh, this is the 13 bankers that show up in the Treasury Secretary's office uh, to demand the scalp of Brooksley Bourne, uh, the only sort of real regulator in the entire. Oh, I remember uh, that now. You're right. Right. And then after that, with Brooksley born out and the Republicans back in charge, they appoint Wendy Graham uh, to chair the Commodities Future Trading Commission. And Wendy then does a special energy derivative carve out of uh, derivatives that weren't covered by the Commodities Future Modernization Act. And using those two carve outs that create this immense uh, regulatory black hole Enron engineers artificial shortages of electricity that bankrupt California, cause the Democratic governor uh, to be uh, annihilated and make uh, Enron um, a fortune. Uh, right. A good old. Right. And, and Ken Lay had a secret meeting with Arnold Schwarzenegger early on in this process. And when when uh, Daryl Issa found out about it, he broke down in tears because he wanted to be the next governor of California. 
So, yeah, it's even worse because uh, on the way to that California meeting, Ken Lay met with Dick Cheney. And the California senators were um, begging and pushing the administration to use its authority under the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to block these immense price rises. And uh, Lay, we know subsequently, though this was all kept secret at the time, gave his wish list to Dick Cheney of the infamous um, secret energy committee Mm -hmm. uh, in in which, much like Tillerson, they brought all the, the, you know, bad guys within the tent and kept it secret how they would carve up. Uh, American energy and land and, and things like that. And the next day, Dick Cheney went out and delivered this full scale, right from the script attack um, and said, to, you know, to, that there would be no price caps warning off the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and adding gratuitously a blast at California as a bunch of tree huggers that had caused their own problem because they didn't, uh, uh, you know, build more turbines. In fact, demand was unusually low for electricity. Uh, but what the, was happening is the energy companies were deliberately taking production offline. Right. Creating, creating artificial uh, scarcities. Creating so, brownouts so- and blackouts and threatening people's lives right and and wiping out gray davis as governor so you've been observing this for for some time where do you think the current deregulatory environment that the trump administration is promoting um is going to take us what what is your prognosis well it is so bad that there are parts of the wall street journal that are actually aghast so there's an article uh as we uh speak that talks about uh, Trump is going to kick off a renewal of the disastrous race to the bottom. And so this is where mostly it's a contest between the U.S. with Wall Street and the United Kingdom with the city of London on who can have the weakest regulation, the weakest supervision, and the least danger of anyone being prosecuted, what we call the three Ds, deregulation, desupervision, and de facto decriminalization. And this was a race that, again, both parties ran uh, in the United Kingdom. Blair uh, deliberately modeled himself after Clinton, so he called it New Labor instead of New Democrats. And uh, he excoriated his uh, regulators, financial regulators, as supposedly being mean to the bankers. Now, banking supervision had died completely under him and such. Now, with Brexit as a threat, where the United Kingdom fears losing uh, parts of the City of London finance to Frankfurt and other places, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong and such, um, the Brits especially under these, the very conservative prime minister, May, um, will have every incentive to be even more aggressive than the United States in this deregulation, except now it looks also like they're trying to kick off a war, a race to the bottom on corporate income tax. And again, with Brexit uh, and the loss of the ability to be part of the EU in terms of tariffs, 
the United Kingdom is also going to have uh, a huge incentive uh, to reduce corporate income taxes and try to outcompete the Irish that are uh, so close to their shores. So, so all this happens, and where does it lead us? Are we is this is this the setup for economic prosperity, which is the sales pitch we're getting from Theresa May and 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 you know so-called President Donald Trump, or is this uh, the setup for another crash? Are we looking at you know, well, the answer, the of course, is yes. The answer, of course, is yes. Uh, and that is because the first thing you have to produce to get the really big crisis is the next really big bubble. And everything looks good in a bubble, as Bill Clinton knows, right? Bill Clinton took credit for all those years, his brilliance, his embrace of austerity, and it was all wonderful. Well, he was the beneficiary, of course, of the two biggest bubbles in world history the tech bubble and the housing bubble, which didn't just start under the bush. It was going big time uh, in the later years of the Clinton administration as well. So we're going to probably have the Trump bubble. So what's, what's the bubble, the now? bubble in the UK? Yeah, I, I have heard that, that uh, the banksters are now tranching car loans and student loans, particularly student loans, because they're non-defaultable. And that they're basically doing the same thing they did with mortgages. Are they doing mortgages again? I mean, where where do we what bubble do we expect to pop? We don't know yet, but it has to be big enough that it actually causes major financial institutions uh, to get into liquidity crises. So. Um, you, you are correct. They are doing exotic derivatives of things like student loans and um, subprime. In fact, they call it subprime uh, automobile loans. Right. But you also have to remember the crisis that we know best, the one that blew up the world in 2008, that was the third iteration of these kinds of derivatives. These kinds of derivatives, which are called CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, they were first done by, bum-ba-da-dum, Michael Milken Mm -hmm. with junk bonds. Then they were – and those – That was during the Reagan years, wasn't it? That was during Reagan and Bush years. That is correct. The first Bush. Then they did it again under the late years of Clinton. And right into early Bush when it crashed again. And what they did then was a whole menagerie, uh, but it, a lot of manufactured housing. Mm-hmm. So that that's mobile home trailer type stuff uh-huh. um, that uh, doesn't have a very good uh, resale value. So that crashed. And then the third one was the new and improved. Hey, liars loans. Let's package a bunch of liars loans, which we know to have a 90 percent fraud incidence. And then we'll pay outrageous fees to the credit rating agencies who will give us a triple A. And while alchemists can never transmute lead to gold, credit rating agencies, baby, they can take. And this this is what they're doing with subprime car loans. And this is what they're doing. But it, they're much smaller in dollar amounts uh-huh. uh, than the crisis. So you need um, to get the really big crisis again. You need um, a much bigger bubble. But we're only in the first month of the term. Right. Give it time, baby. Right. Fascinating. So so you're predicting a bubble coming out of this and a crash coming out of the bubble, essentially. Yeah. But the first thing, again, is remember, in a bubble, 
every stupid decision in the world looks brilliant. We just heard clips today, starting with the Young Turks breaking down the Republican plan to kill the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The Majority Report spoke with David Dayan about Trump's plan to sell off our infrastructure to big business. Richard Wolff spoke on economic update about Trump's tax plan and how countries around the world may react. Ring of Fire explained why regulations actually help the economy, contrary to all the propaganda you've ever heard. The David Pakman Show laid out Trump's blatant scam of slamming Goldman Sachs during the campaign only to fill his cabinet with their employees. Again, on Economic Update, Richard Wolff explained what the fiduciary rule is, why it's so important, and the unsurprising fact that Trump wants to kill it. Our activism for today is to call Congress in support of the fiduciary rule to protect everyone in the country who may ever want to retire one day. And finally, Tom Hartman spoke with William Black about the doors to corruption being flung wide open. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Travis Crystal in Fort Worth, Texas. I wanted to talk about the commute. I read a few years back that psychologists or sociologists or whatever studied this question, what's the number one determiner of happiness in modern society? It wasn't whether or not you're single or married. It wasn't even health. It wasn't money. Uh, In fact, it was commute. The longer your commute is, the more miserable you are, generally speaking. Um, I, about a year ago, made the move to uh, an apartment complex that's literally across the street from my office. And I just want to share my story with, with the listeners because this is probably the greatest decision I've ever made in my life. It was such a game changer. Walking to work, it's just a lot more pleasant. Being able to walk home for lunch, see my cat, whatever, even if I need to maybe take a nap at lunchtime, that can happen. The, the amount of time that, that it saves, you know, means that I can get more sleep, I even freed up enough uh, free time so that I could run as a green in the most conservative district in the country against a Tea Party a crazy man. Um, I, I wouldn't have been able to run a successful campaign if I was getting bogged down with a long commute. So that's it. You know, I just want to encourage the listeners, if you have that opportunity, try it. Move, move to a place that's walking distance from your uh, job and uh, run as a green. And of course, anytime you buy something on Amazon, you better go through Jay's best of the left link to uh, get that 8% over to the best of the left. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is the Forum uh, Central New York, right outside of Syracuse, New York, actually. And um, I was listening to your most recent podcast, and I wanted to give you a little bit of an update on how Trump supporters are reacting to his uh, not only election, but his inauguration uh, in my local community, which is majority white. I am indeed a black man. So it's um, it's a little apt 
Um, I was moved to hear uh, one of your clips, which suggested that many uh, Trump supporters were demoralized by his actions and by um, his uh, activities since he was elected. Well, in my community, we are seeing possibly the exact opposite of that. There has been many, many incidences uh, between known um, Trump supporters and minority people here, which would suggest that they are not as demoralized, or at least they see his placement in the White House as some sort of green light for them to exact uh, some negative treatment on other people. Um, I personally have been called, unfortunately, a nigger at least three times in public, a couple times in private since he was elected, and uh, have had many incidences, uh, too many actually to count, where individuals have done things to reinforce the fact that they have uh, control over certain aspects of my life. I mention this because we must always remain vigilant. Uh, many of these individuals may indeed not like how Trump is acting, but they still act out. And um, we must be vigilant about that because they are not going to stop, uh, at least not from what I see. Keep up the good work, and um, I look forward to more episodes. You seem to be uh, hitting a stride recently. Uh, I can almost sense the passion back in your work. Good day. Hey, Jay, this is Kevin in Louisiana. Just wanted to give you a response to your Trump's America podcast, most recent one. A little perspective from the South. Uh, in all honesty, uh, I used to be a conservative myself, so I got a little bit of insight on what a lot of these Trump voters are going through. A little bit of history on me. Grew up, you know, fairly simple life, suburb of a small town outside of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I always, I guess, consider myself, you know, the whole cliche, socially liberal, fiscally conservative type attitude. I had a pretty strict conservative father, fairly liberal, easygoing mother. So I kind of gravitated towards her more than him. But then when I went through trade school, got a trade in drafting, started working in the chemical plants. I uh, was really influenced by a lot of uh, older peers of mine, you know, with the whole conservative attitude. That's all you hear down here in the South on, you know, talk radio is the conservative slant. And it really kind of put a pretty good bias on me in that direction. So that's kind of where the whole socially liberal, fiscally conservative idea kind of came to me because you know, I was exposed to uh, gay people at a pretty young age. My brother had a gay roommate, and he was older than me. I looked up to him, so never was conservative on the social aspect. Anyhow, I guess what I can chalk it up most to is uh, just 
plain old ignorance and, you know, not to be offensive to conservative people, conservative listeners or so on. But um, I can remember before my mind really changed into a more liberal direction, I was, um, like I said, listening to a lot of conservative radio and they just do not give you the information. So when it comes to anything from money and politics, exactly how much the rich are keeping their money out of the out of um, the system through you know tax havens and so on. I mean, all of that information just really isn't being given to these people. And not to mention now, I mean, you know, the more divisive we get. You know, with all the rhetoric from Trump, I mean, it just feeds into that. These people are, you know, a lot of them aren't highly educated people. I'm not college educated. I just happen to stumble on podcasts like yours, Young Turks, Secular Talk, other things that changed my mind because I've always considered myself fairly open-minded. I was... uh on the conservative side, and I finally decided to start really listening to the uh, more liberal side of the argument, and you guys actually changed my mind by providing facts, you know, but a lot of people aren't that open-minded, I guess. Like I said, my very conservative father, he eats, sleeps, breathes, Fox News, all for Trump, but these aren't all you know just racist people that are voting for trump they are largely just ignorant they just don't get the information that they need and this this whole new rhetoric with everybody's lying in the media i mean that's been a fox news gimmick for years and uh it's really ridiculous because when my mind started to change you know you watch the regular news networks like abc cbs nbc I mean, to call them liberal media is laughable. I mean, they largely just don't inform you on certain subjects. To say they're liberally biased is ridiculous. Anyway, that's just a little bit of perspective from the South. Wanted to give you that bit of information. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Okay, a couple more thoughts on talking across the aisle. I came across an article just a day or two ago, but it's an old one from a couple of years ago. And the point of the article was to discuss where liberals go wrong when making their political points. And he says that there is basically an epidemic of liberals using what he refers to as line chart liberalism, that we think that the data is so firmly on our side that we basically just have to present the facts and everyone will naturally come to the same conclusions we do. And this is a topic that I'm sure you've heard before in one form or another, 
basically the idea that you know we need to be better at telling stories and connecting with people rather than just presenting the data. And this is a little bit of a rehash of that, but it goes into detail as to why that's the case. And it's a little bit deeper than is usually talked about. So, you know, what we usually say is, well, people connect with stories. You know, you got to grab people by the emotion. That's why we have to tell stories and not just present data. But that's not it. I mean, that's not all there is. The other fact in, in play here is that the data can be easily interpreted in wildly different ways. So I'll, I'm just going to read like a couple of paragraphs from this article. The If you want to read along, the article itself is called Against Line Chart Liberalism. And this is where he picks up uh, about where I left off. So he says, Say, for example, we're looking at data about income inequality. For purposes of discussion, assume that these data are rigorously accurate. They have been gathered and presented without bias. Now, assume that they show income inequality is rising fast. As a progressive, I would look at those data and say they indicate something bad is happening. That they reflect a draining of wealth from those who need it most to those who need it least. A conservative, on the other hand, might look at that same data and say that they indicate something good, that those who have worked the most energetically and productively are reaping a greater share of the rewards of the economy than those who have not. These conclusions are diametrically opposed to each other, but they both rest on the same foundation of unimpeachably accurate data. The difference is the core assumptions about how the world works that I and my hypothetical conservative debating partner bring to how we see them. So the data by itself makes no argument. An argument only forms when those data are combined with a worldview. End quote. So, the worldview he goes on to explain is the stories we need to tell and how we need to get out of our heads talking about just facts and data and get down to our hearts and our guts talking about uh, stories with passion and sincerity and maybe humor and maybe sex appeal to attract people in, in the same way we've known for thousands of years that people are attracted to uh, those kinds of storylines. And then the, the one like little killer quote uh, within this article is just that he says, putting your story in the form of a chart is like distributing your would-be top 40 hit in the form of sheet music. And I couldn't agree more. I think this is a, a, a topic that communicators need to be reminded of all the time, especially those in politics and science, you know, climate scientists get uh, accused of having this problem all the time. An enormous amount of the data is on their side, and they cannot communicate it to save their lives or ours, uh, for that matter. And so I think that this advice goes equally well for if you're just having a conversation with a buddy of yours, or if you are a politician or a communicator or someone in the media who's actually reaching out and trying to convince people of something, remember that data is not enough. And it's not just because humans are silly, emotional beings who need to be entertained with stories. It's because people literally interpret the data differently. I would still love to hear if you've had any interesting conversations in which you uh, start with the idea that Trump is the wrong answer to many of the right questions. Uh, I'm dying to hear 
how people respond uh, to that as a conversation starter. So keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're doing can see past Stories and forget who it is with who.